Hello, you're listening to the Assessment Association Podcast. Hello and welcome to this, the second of the E-Assessment Association's series of um, COVID-19 related podcasts. My name is Gareth Hopkins, I'm an E-Assessment Specialist at City and Guilds and today I'm joined by Shane, Richard and Patrick who can introduce themselves one by one starting with Shane. Hello then, uh, I'm Shane, officially CEO, uh, unofficially the Chief Mischief Maker at PebblePad. <laughs> Uh, which is a learning journey platform, um, which sort of translates to uh, a platform designed to help learners uh, plan and prepare for learning, um, record and reflect on their experiences, and ultimately share and showcase created examples of their learning. Um, I think for this audience, I'd abridge that further to say that we um, scaffold and surface the process of learning to allow it to be assessed by myriad stakeholders. Uh, and as a company, we work with about 120 universities and professional organisations across the globe. So that's me. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, Richard? Hi, yeah, from uh, Richard Little, uh, the Product Development Director at uh, RM Results. So I uh, joined RM Results in 2014, so I've been there for about six years and responsible for our assessment products, um, which is so RM Assessor. Uh, for our kind of human marking of uh, kind of paper and um, computer and coursework based assessments and um, assessment master which is our on-screen kind of authoring and delivering uh, uh, delivery of on-screen assessments but um, are also responsible for our school software kind of part of the business as well so so various software solutions for that's predominantly UK schools around school management systems internet safety IT management and the like so the school stuff predominantly uk based but our assessment customers are uh, are, are from various places around uh, around the world cool thank you and uh, lastly patrick i am uh, patrick craven i'm director of strategic partnerships uh policy stakeholders and uh, contracts at city and guilds uh city and guilds is a uh uk and international vocational awarding body um that delivers several uh, thousand qualifications to several thousand centers across um uk and the globe and um and i look after uh, a lot of our policy and research work and have sort of a long-standing relationship with the association with regards to uh, technology innovation right thanks very much um so um, I don't know if you can hear that, but my son's decided that this is the perfect moment to start practicing the piano. Um, <laughs> um, so we'll, uh, I'll try and keep myself on mute. Um, so um, clearly the, the world has changed um, since uh, the COVID-19 virus and the ensuing lockdown. Um, can you give us a, a quick update on how your your businesses have had to adapt? Uh, we'll start with Shane again. You know, I, I thought about this question quite hard because um, I didn't want to give a trite answer, but at the moment, it does seem, I mean, apart from all the stuff which I think we'll come on to around, uh, you know, working from home and all of that, for the business, things haven't changed that much. Um, for our users, assessment's part of an ongoing process. Um, we're widely used to support placements and experiential learning. and and that's 
normally supported by our digital workbooks. So um, learners work through those, adding evidence as they go along. They can be accessed by um, teachers, assessors, reviewers over time. Assessment's kind of not end point. Um, so it's sort of business as usual. And some of the feedback we've had has said um, that the students who are working through these workbooks um, have transitioned really easily to the, if you like, remote working from the institution. And I suppose in some ways that's easier for those students who are used to being away from the university because they're on placements in hospitals or study abroad projects and that kind of thing. Um, so at the moment, I think, no major change. What I think I'm worried about is what happens longer term um, and whether we revert back to a kind of a, a time when just content is thrown at the LMS and distributed uh, at scale to folks who are just assessed on it. I don't think that's going to happen, but that's an easy way to scale up e-learning, less so e-assessment. Um, so I'll wait to see what, what will happen in that regard. But for now, no major change because of the way people use our platform already. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, Richard, uh, how about RM? Yeah, yeah so, so, it's, so, so we'd probably be at the other end of the scale to that then really. So, so <clears throat> the, the lockdown was, was a significant shock for, for RM really. So ultimately, you know, schools closed and exams were cancelled. Uh, that, that is a, a really large part of, uh, of, of what we do as an organisation. So the, so the impact, the immediate shock was, was really quite significant. I mean, that, that bedded down very quickly into um, a reaction for us as an organisation to understand what, what that really meant for us. So, 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 so from an international point of view, we have customers that fall into different camps, really, as, as, as exams are just cancelled uh, as largely as they have been uh, for general qualifications in the UK. Some of our customers have postponed, so we're looking at different timeframes and, and doing things on different scales. But then, but then some are actually are actually just business as usual. So they, you know, they, they, they've just bedded down and continued continued as they as they are and then from the school's point of view you know what we were doing before covid which was a lot of, you know a lot of kind of on-site engineering with it support and that, and that and that kind of thing very quickly changed to a reaction for us as an organization to help schools that either had no cloud provision you know microsoft or google tenancies for accessing kind of content remotely or they had something but they weren't making good use of it so we very quickly kind of readjusted ourselves as an organization to respond to those to those immediate needs that, that were coming through from our customers so, so it was quite quite a big change for us and i think one of the things that we are currently noticing just right now it, 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 it which sounds obvious really but but the pace of change is is huge because we spend a few weeks helping schools to cope with the shutdown of their of their of their school and their in, 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 in kids being at home and now obviously we're starting a wave of activity to understand what does phase reopening of schools really mean for people if 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 if, if schools are going to be open to a degree from the first of june so that so that pace of change is is quite interesting for us as an organization i mean it's a really positive thing 
overall because it just you know just it makes the thing quite quite dynamic and exciting but uh, we've certainly certainly have to be kind of thinking on our feet on a, on a number of things very quickly yeah absolutely um, and I think because I mean it's been said elsewhere a few times now but this is sort of the situation that we're in now uh, trying to get remote learning out and remote assessment is what the industry has sort of been playing around with for a few years and now everyone's had to fully engage with it all of a yeah. sudden um, that, that general feeling of acceleration of some things that may have already started is uh is, is quite an exciting kind of position i think it's, uh, it's it's daunting for lots of people but it but it but it potentially is quite good for the sector yeah uh, and patrick have sitting guilds been coping or how has how has the world changed for City and Guilds? <laughs> how has the world changed? Um, yeah, I mean, I, th I think probably um, if I can, I'll, I'll answer it from two perspectives. I think there's a perspective from us as an organisation. I think there's then a perspective from the wider sort of technical, vocational, educational, and training ecosystem. Um, so for us, City and Guilds, um, clearly there have been changes, and I think if I'm honest, it, it, it can depend to a certain extent on the role that you, you, you played in City and Guilds as to how much your, your world has changed. Um, you know, I take myself, although I'm notionally based out of our London office, um, I may not actually be in the London office for several days at a time, even if I'm in London, because I might have been elsewhere in London uh, meeting people or um, engaged in, in conferences or talking or you know platform speaking etc so so in that sense um i've always i guess worked a bit of a hybrid of office and remotely and, and all that it's meant really is that that switched you know full scale to remote um for other roles it impacts them in different ways but again sitting girls responded quickly like all organizations and has always had a, a pretty solid technology backbone to the organization so by and large i think we've converted very quickly into an organization that now has uh, a lot of frequent um, engagement uh, online, able to access documents, share documents, and, and generally uh, converse with colleagues in, in a pretty seamless way. We, we were chatting earlier on about how perhaps um, the, uh, the the capacity of physical meeting rooms uh, in organisations acted as a bit of a break on how many meetings you could cram into a day, whereas in a, in a virtual world we seem to be able to cram endless meetings into a day and endless conversations um so it does feel a little bit relentless i guess in that sense for the for the wider ecosystem it will largely depend on on the nature of the organization um sitting gills unlike the references rm was given um we don't just operate in that school exam space so clearly anywhere where we have a, a product or a service that would ladder into a summer assessment schedule um all of those things have been completely disrupted and turned on their head. Um, we're fully engaged in, I, I guess, a sort of a three category approach to all assessment this year, which is you either revert to, to an estimate calculate process um, if you need to produce um, a form of result and no assessment can take place um, this year, which is largely what will happen with GCSEs, A-levels, some of our technicals, et cetera, and the functional skills. Um, there's a second category where you may choose to adapt um, some of the modes of delivery. So that might mean that you adapt a particular methodology from uh, an on-site activity to uh, a remote activity or a uh, professional discussion or a witness testimony, things of that nature, or you know, starting to think about remote invigilation as a, an adaptation of conventional invigilation. 
Um, and then finally, there's an option which is actually have no, no other alternative but to defer or to delay the assessment because it requires a level of practical um, activity and, and demonstration of skills for which there is no no alternative. So you have to delay those things. So I think it, it's it's caused us to be um, a very very sort of reflective and creative around the services that we currently offer. I think what it has highlighted for me is that we've always been quite innovative in how we've used technology in the organisation, and therefore we've had quite a a reasonable safety net to fall back on. Um, it's, it's caused us, I think, to scale up some of those services in a way that we might have been predicting a much slower trajectory for. Um, and actually, many of those things have now happened overnight at scale. Um, so I think it, it starts then to set an incident, an interesting precedent about how we come out of COVID-19 situation as well. Um, but it's changed things, certainly. Um, and uh, and we've had to adapt very quickly and very creatively, uh, just like many other organisations. The assessment question conference has gone virtual. Starting on June 23rd, we'll have three weeks of amazing content, all centred around e-assessment. Week one, future gazing and innovation. Week two, assessment and practical implementation. And week three, technology, higher education and regulation. So make sure you don't miss out. Go to e-assessment-question.com for more information. Now back to Gareth. Yeah, so you were saying um, with the um, physical assessments and having to change away from those, uh, some of the stuff that I was working on before lockdown was about um, moving away from, because they're quite expensive to run, um, lots of types of assessments, unless they're a, an actual test. So yeah. um, networking, things like that. Um, yeah. How, if depending on how we go, um, how do you see those assessments evolving or adapting? Do you think that the ways that people will be required to be assessed will change? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think possibly what you, you might be hinting at there is, is whether or not there will be uh, a, a greater acceptance of um, simulation virtual proxy forms of assessment whereas previously um, there's been a, a fixation on the uh, the physical the direct observation things of that nature um, yeah. I, I think there will be a drift towards a greater tolerance for other forms of assessment um, that might be deemed uh, just as, uh, as suitable and appropriate because if nothing else, I think, you know, if I reflect on what most of us spend our time doing virtually every day at the moment, I think prior to this, there would have been all sorts of potential criticisms about the the online experience, the resilience, the robustness, the, um, the behaviours uh, that it, it um, instills if you are forced to do things remotely rather than face to face. and. I think it's fair to say that over the last few weeks, I'm not aware that any of those reservations have created a barrier in the way in which we engage with other people and the way in which we communicate. So I think it will allow us to actually explore some of those um, challenges in, in a much more meaningful way than we've been able to previously. Yeah, is that something that um, you can see happening as well, Richard? Yeah, I mean, I think there's... Um because I guess, I guess in, some, in some respects we're quite early into some of these conversations with our customers but one of the themes that's definitely coming through is 
an appetite to look for solutions that have just the right level of inbuilt kind of flexibility and adaptability to them um, so that organizations may be able to better respond to to whatever the future holds as as, as things evolve so if the if the paper assessment world if you like the structured summative assessment is a you know we, we, we create an exam we print it it sits in a warehouse and then we ship it out for a date that model will we go back to that model or do we actually need a range of things that may be formative coursework and summative based and those summative solutions need to move much more on screen so they're inherently more flexible in what is sat uh, and when it is sat and how it is taken and you know you, you, is it easier to have an item bank rather than a, stru a structured script that you've printed all of that kind of stuff um so that so that move towards flexibility um so that we can adapt as we need to or our customers can adapt as they need to i think is gonna is probably gonna become a real kind of key theme for us yeah and because obviously because i work in the assessment I, I, that tends to be the perspective i take on things but shane as um pebble pad and um do you see a big change in how you offer learning because of covid or do you think that it will be pretty similar going forward well i think we've been <laughs> I'm just listening to Richard and uh, Patrick. I'm, I'm sat here thinking now, am I extremely naive or just extremely fortunate? Um, but actually, because um, I guess from the very nature of the way that our platform is designed and expected to be used, we've seen over the years a number of people moving what have previously been, um, if you like, direct assessments. Uh, happening through through kind of simulations and through self and peer assessment so even something like oscis which i'm not sure if people are familiar with those i think it's observable um supervised clinical examinations something like that that um, sounds about right it's what describes <laughs> A number of our customers, you know, they, they used to have their students do, I think, three of these. They'd have to bring in a whole pile of assessors, get huge spaces where these and, and set up stations. And and this almost links to this question. I know we're also going to address around. Do we think there'll be a, um, a closer bond, a better, healthier relationship between um, uh, learning, teaching and assessment in the future? And I think what some of our customers have done is they've um, started um inviting the students i'm using inviting instead of requiring because it sounds a bit nicer but inviting their students to um, demonstrate their skills through using um you know the cameras on their phones through working on members of their family demonstrating some kind of life support method on on, on a, a, a colleague reflecting on that demonstrating they understand the levels of um uh expectation around that particular skill sharing it with a peer having that peer self uh, assess that piece of work and all of that is a great learning design because both the student themselves and their peer are learning from that single activity they're learning more about their own capacity to understand the skill that has to be assessed and cutting down massively on the um, number of assessors needed to assess this skill at different points in time and the evidence is showing that the students become much better practitioners as, as a result of that 
Now, once you've then got a circumstance, a crisis like we have now, it's not, it's a much smaller step to then say, let's do this summatively. Um, and I think uh, it, it, it doesn't have to be then um, working on a, you know, um, a friend as a patient, but actually doing things like watching videos embedded in our case in our workbooks and those videos being um, and there are lots of them around but embedded in a page which asks the students you know what would you be looking for in this particular procedure what things would you be careful of avoiding um what skills can you draw upon so i think we in a way close the gap between the way assessment used to happen to where the assessment is already happening like that and when this crisis arrives it's a much much smaller step to, to be brave enough to to do summative assessment in this way. Uh, I hope I, I, I find it much easier to explain this with pictures or examples. <laughs> I hope that kind of makes sense. Yeah. No, it does. Because in the past few years, there's been a big shift towards having one single assessment at the end of the course, which proves the candidate uh, or the learner knows what they're doing. Do you, do you think there will be a, a shift towards more course-based stuff as a result of what we're seeing here and having to go back to estimation yeah and then oh sorry I, I think to give a um a, a very different example to that um obviously there's a lot of concern at the moment around um SAMLs, contract cheating um academic integrity and one solution is to have students do assessments the way they've always done them and then to check those assessments at the end of the process um for originality another way is to surface the process of the learning at the point at which the learning becomes the assessment so uh, again in a using a sort of portfolio like approach someone would submit for assessment a piece of work that develops over time that instead of just being an essay includes all of the working out of the essay. So why I thought of writing it about this particular topic, the resources that I use, the framework of my questions, the sample bits of writing, the, assess the, the piece of work itself, and then perhaps some reflective questions on how I think I've addressed the outcomes. And a piece of work developed like that and assessed like that, becomes amenable to assessment over time and early intervention rather than waiting until the end and failing a student. It, it brings the learning much closer to the assessment um, and it kind of precludes, and I'm not suggesting this has to happen for every piece of work, but it means you don't have to um, then check the validity of the work because you've seen it evolving over time. Um, so, so we're seeing many more examples of that where the process of learning evolves into the process of assessment and different stakeholders can view that work as it develops and the 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 need for a one point in time at the end of a program or course assessment diminishes yeah absolutely uh, richard or patrick have you got anything you'd like to add I mean, just touching on the, the point Shane mentioned, you, you mentioned Shane about the kind of the peer review as part of that as well. I think that's a really interesting angle to all of this in that in that blurred model of what's assessment and what's learning. We, we've done a couple of trials uh, with some customers on 
the, the you know the, the peer review as part of the assessment cycle but in a, in a formative context and and how that helps students learn from others and see what good looks like and you know how that can then be built into the, to the learning model and I think that's kind of you know a, a long step away from or a big step away from the everyone takes an exam at the end of two years and see, seeing general benefit into the learning cycle as a result of kind of everybody being involved in um in in that kind of assessment cycle in the, in 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 the most general sense i think is a really interesting concept that that i hope we see more of as uh, as time goes on yeah i mean actually it's um i guess what i'd add to that i think it's a really interesting theme to explore because you know, if you've worked in the industry for long enough, you've always, I think, observed this sort of pendulum swing from, um, you know, at, at various times, a, uh, uh, a a support and welcome of uh, of a more modular structure to education and assessment, and then the pendulum swung more recently in these days back towards more of that summative terminal assessment. And I and I think there is now um it's always been kind of present which shane alluded to i think you know if you're close enough to systems like pebble pad and, and those ways of working it's always been present and just never really exploited in the way that it could be that a lot of our national exam system or assessment system is fixated with with product over process so you have this fixation on only judging the end product and wanting that to be as summative and holistic as possible um, when actually, you know, if you think about the ultimate destination of most people as they progress into the workplace, um, most employers uh, are actually just as interested, if not more interested, in the um, the authenticity of how an individual gets from an original concept through to an end an end outcome, and having some confidence in their ability to to navigate through what is always an iterative process with most uh, work that we get involved in. So I think. I think there's a really interesting opportunity to start to think about how assessment could be constructed in a different way to allow that scaffolding and that storyboarding type approach. Because whether we like it or not, or not assess, models of assessment often drive um, learning activity. Um, and therefore, if we're cognizant of that, we can have an influence on learning activity and learning programs by designing assessment activity that reflects the sort of qualities and behaviours that we want to measure. Uh, yes, yeah, um, that's great. Um, so uh, coming back to our list of questions which I sent around earlier, um, there's one around mission and about whether or not uh, mission has changed because a, a company's mission has changed because of uh, COVID and, and just the situation that we're in now. Um, Richard, is that something that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, so yeah, uh, and I think um, so. I wouldn't say our mission had changed. Uh, I guess particularly on the assessment side of, of our of our business, because I think we would, <clears throat> whilst we're doing various things, uh, there, there's a general trend of moving, um, you know, the, the digital transformation of, of of a customer base that may be on paper and moving moving on screen for assessments. Um, there is a a, a bit of a trend for increased focus on formative assessments during the cycle uh, rather than just the summative assessment at the end at, at the end so those kind of agendas for us are still there um the pace with which um 
we're looking at them with our customers has is, is, is accelerated dramatically. And so uh, open conversations that would be, we, we, you know, we, we're thinking about thinking about this, to, it, moving swiftly into, can you come and talk to us about how we would do it next Tuesday? And those kind of things is, um, is, is quite a rapid increase in pace. But, but but overall the mission I think is is is, is the same same for us um, and, and I think it'll be really it's going to be really interesting to see um, in it, across the industry in general over the next six months how much how much that pace is sustained or whether it all dissipates away if um, if some of the kind of the COVID threats kind of kind of decline over the, over the coming months. Uh, yeah, Patrick. How about City and Guilds? Has its central mission changed um, as a result? Um, yeah, no. The, the honest answer is no, it hasn't. And if anything, dare I say, it's become even more, even more critical um, than it possibly was before. I mean, our, the central mission of City and Guilds has always been about helping learners to get into a job, uh, develop on on the job, and, and then move on to the next job or stage in their career, and 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 that central mission doesn't change at all. Um, the only thing that's probably changed or adapted is how we try and ensure that we we remain true to that mission and are able to um, able to sort of execute on it. Um, and and we have done that. You know, wherever possible, we've been trying to work with educators and training providers to ensure that we provide ways that they can still allow learners to be assessed. Um, clearly, when you think about it in its most extreme context with apprenticeships and things like that, there are some sectors who, through no fault of their own, um, have been impacted in, in very dramatic ways. And, and that will actually be more of the barrier. It's not that we can't support and intervene and help those learners be assessed. It's just that actually some of those sectors, those occupational areas, have, have literally closed down. Um, if you look across hospitality, catering, some of those areas, um, you know, they've been impacted very significantly. So from our point of view, our mission hasn't changed. It's become even more important. I think it will be even more important again as we try and um, sort of gradually move out of the current situation and restart the economy. I think there'll be an awful lot of displaced um, workforce, displaced learners who will be very keen to get back into the labour market and wanting to find ways to do that. So, so it become even more important, I think, that we're able to offer a range of services to support them doing that. Have you found that as well, Shane? So rather than a change, more of an um, increase? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Um... Speaking to our vision rather than our mission, it's to change the way uh, learning, teaching and assessment is designed and experienced. And I think from what we're all saying here, um, that's going to happen. You know, a shift from um, summative to formative, um, as Patrick said, a, a concern for the process of learning over the products of learning or assessment products. Um, so that's all part of our, our vision anyway. I, I, I think the issue has always been um, not technical, but cultural. And I think it requires real effort to make these kind of changes. And I think the thing that will be the biggest challenge is resource. So, I mean, I work primarily with the higher education sector, but for all the areas we work in, um, making these changes will depend upon how well funded the institutions we work with are 
and how those institutions decide to allocate their funds. Um, the priorities they put on, uh, which again is, a, I think, a kind of cultural, partly political decision they will make about the value or their, about their values around learning, teaching, and assessment. But I, I think there's a great opportunity here, as, as has been mentioned before, for this change to be accelerated as a result of this crisis. And I'm hopeful, really hopeful for that. You mentioned funding there. Um, um, I'm guessing that there's going to be a change. Well, there may be a change as we go forward in um, who who we go to at the point of paying for a service and and where funding is going to be coming from. Um, I'm a I'm not close enough to that sort of stuff to have a great opinion. Um, is there anything that any of you have got an opinion on? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think if, if what you're alluding to there, Gareth, is is um, the sources of funding that's you know sort of underpinning and, and stimulating engagement with learning. What you might yeah, be I suppose there's, there's two th there's two angles to come out from there's the funding one, and also like will businesses change who their their primary customer is? So I'd say that um, coming from City Yields, the primary customer would be a centre rather than the candidate um could you see a change in in who we engage with primarily because of this um i think we will see i mean bearing in mind that city and guilds as a as a group is more than just the awarding body we have um training organizations and um uh corporate learning uh content production uh companies within our group as well so i think we already have some experience of of direct to learner interfaces and I, I i guess if you look at what might happen in the near future there will be examples where learners will be displaced from work and learners will be wishing to engage in learning and development in in different ways to simply enrolling on a course or a program at an institution um, so I think there will be a need to provide a variety of ways in which they're, they're able to do that. I think the other thing that has been happening for some time in the UK is this emerging model of a period of state funded support for education and training and then typically post 18, which would already, already be true of higher education in England, um, Wales, you know, that, that stage when actually it becomes more of a loan based um, support for learner and therefore the uh the the power of decision making about where that loan is invested becomes more centralized within the learner uh than the institution um so i think there's every chance that as we revisit some of that thinking around more generally adult education we'll see probably a slight change in locus of uh of decision making in terms of where the learner and how the learner chooses to spend their time and effort mm. Uh, Richard, is that something that you can see changing? Yeah, I think the um, in in a, in a COVID-specific context, I don't think I've seen anything specific yet that might change it for us. I think similar to some of the things that kind of kind of Patrick mentioned, there's a there are trends I think in the in, in the sector that we're monitoring and observing to see how they may change over time. And you know, so, so our business model today is nearly always interacting with 
um, an awarding organisation or, or a professional body or into a school, a multi-academy trust, local authority, you know, all those kind of things. As time goes on and um, you, the, there is the potential for more independent learning, um, you know, in, in, in things like Coursera and Duolingo and those kind of models coming through micro-credentialing, ongoing learning through life rather than just doing it at A level as a degree and those kind of things, those kind of trends we kind of continue to monitor and, and, and expect to change the model over time. Um, but, but COVID specifically for us just at the moment, it, it may accelerate some of that. Um, I haven't, haven't seen any, 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 of it, any of it yet, I think. Okay. Um, um, so one of the questions that we've got, and I don't know, um, is what reactions have you witnessed that have been good, bad, and perhaps a little ugly? So in terms of uh, either people you work with, and, and obviously not naming names, <laughs> but um, um, where have you seen that the biggest reactions, do you think, uh, in, in people in our area reacting to, to the changes? Anybody really? I mean, I suppose <laughs> we talked about the previous um, the previous podcast, uh, which came out today as we're recording, was a lot about um, remote proctoring and and how people's perception of re remote proctoring and the ability to use it have changed. Um, have you seen any strong reactions around that or any other part of the process? Or do you th do you think? Yeah, it's, uh, I, mean, I think. Oh. I think like my observation would be, I think, um, by and large, um, by and large, City and Guilds and the various other parties within that sort of ecosystem have tried as hard as they can to be as creative and innovative and flexible as they can to ensure that learners remain engaged. And bear in mind that, you know, what I mean by that is that we've got two ends to that spectrum. We've got a body of learners who traditionally would have been enrolled on programmes of study and have largely been displaced because of, of lockdown and um, social distancing. And although we're starting to see the emergence of new directives now to encourage those type of institutions to get back to work, um, that's going to take a little while to play through and it will mean probably different things for different institutions and different learners. But all of those organisations have been trying to keep those learners engaged Anybody who is a, as a parent themselves will will be fully aware, I'm sure, if they've got children of that age, of what the concept of um, homeschooling has meant uh, for people who've been trying to juggle homeschooling with also working from home, etc. Um, so I think everybody's trying to play their part in keeping engaged in that learning. I think where it's a little bit of a patchwork situation is in that acceptance of some of the adaptation around assessment because. One of my observations when you look at some of those things is how, how readily people start to maybe just try and shift the bar slightly when they look at alternatives to the conventional way of doing things. So remote proctoring, remote invigilation, I guess in, in the English term for it is, um, is, is something which is possible and we're already starting to explore ways in which that can be done in a, in a reliable, scalable way. Um, there's still quite a lot of deep-seated um, culture, and, and Shane touched on this, this sort of cultural resistance to doing things in a different way and to having sufficient trust 
in a different way of doing something. Um, and I think what the current environment has allowed us to do is to expose some of those new ways of doing things so people can learn through experience, whereas previously they might have been sceptical because they just weren't familiar with what was involved. Um, we are starting to see some acceptance of that now. But equally, we're still starting, you know, we're seeing a lot, you know, still quite a few examples of people being resistant to it because it's not the way that we've always done things before or we're not mm. completely comfortable because we're, we might be slightly ignorant of, of what's involved or, uh, or fearful of what's involved. I think from an RM point of view, we've definitely seen a, an increasing trend uh, or increasing pace to the trend of, of an interest in remote, remote proctoring. So we've got a number of conversations going on right now with customers who were probably going to look at it in the future, but definitely want to address it. Uh, straight away so that then it's one of the options they can look at if they need a more flexible approach to assessment so so I don't think it's as straightforward as everyone's going to implement remote proctoring because all exams will be done from home moving forwards but it needs needs to be one of the options that awarding organizations can have should they should they want to use it and I think one of the things um I'm quite interested in uh, kind of seeing as, as those conversations pick up really is there's, there's there's quite often a technical conversation about remote proctoring, you know, how it works, what about the cameras and do people have webcams and all, and all that kind of stuff. But but really it's a, it's a significant change thing in its own right of which the technology could well be one of the simpler elements of it to implement. And, you know, in, in, if you're trying to, roll out at scale assessments that take place outside of a school or a test centre environment. So you've got lots of people needing what we refer to as a sterile environment for a two hour on screen exam. That's quite challenging for a lot of people in a home setting and the internet connectivity isn't necessarily always going to work for that period of time. So there's there's always a lot of non-technical challenges and, 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 and a lot of considerations to go into a change programme for an organisation to take on to take on board. So I think it's definitely interesting times with that increasing appetite for remote proctoring to, to kind of see how that how that develops and whether it does get adopted ad adapted at scale and, and people do accept it i think certainly there's been a in, in the some of the conversations i've been following there's been an adverse reaction to the to proctoring but i i think it's um it, it quickly shifted to a conversation about how relevant it was nowadays to have so many summative, closed book, yeah. knowledge recall examinations. Not, I've got a fantastic team of, uh, of developers and young managers. At no point do I ask them to do things without putting a bit of research into it. <laughs> no time do I need to recall something um, uh, in order to kind of solve a major business problem. So I think um, I think what's happened, it, and I think this speaks to your point a bit, Richard. It it, it moves from a kind of technical conversation um, and and a kind of fear of the unknown to then actually throwing a different or using a different lens through which to look at our existing processes, and I think that has to be healthy. Um, I think one of the other things that this is not an ugly thing. This is just I suppose a wee bit of a frustration. I was at a conference um, a week or so ago. And uh, there was a huge amount of, of offers to share and collaborate and people talking about um, 
working through the crisis by calling in people from different so again i'm talking about the university sector here but um working with people in different um, parts of the organization um, working with students and the students union um reaching out to industry um but one of the groups of people that didn't feature at all and i listened intently for it was vendors and i do i do dislike that term vendor but i think like you we have huge amounts of experience we have the absolute privilege of working with multiple customers um, across multiple disciplines and we have a lot to offer but um, in the uk in particular there's there's too high a level of distrust i think of vendors um, and that's a problem i think we have to try to address because it's a wasted resource and for for us money is absolutely not the motivator we we have um not not just good ideas related to our platform but good ideas that are worth sharing but i think there's a resistance to talk to us and i think that's a shame and i think it would have been nice if this crisis amongst the other things it's causing us to change it brought about a change in that relationship between vendors and our customers and, and, a, and a higher level of trust and respect for what each does yeah is that something that um either richard or patrick have an opinion on the uh, the position of vendors in this conversation Sorry, i said vendors yeah. i think i meant to say vendors yeah. <laughs> I, I absolutely can um i absolutely can can, can empathize with, with that sentiment i guess um I guess at a high level we might use different language for it and I agree with you Shane I'm not I've never been a fan of the term vendor either in terms of um, the, the way in which you know the various parties that contribute to solutions are described but I, th I think in our example we would look at say if we give you an example of something like the apprenticeship system um, the apprenticeship system for that to be successful actually needs um, quite a strong relationship of, of co-creation and delivery between at least four different parties and no one of those parties is actually more dominant than the other if you're going to arrive at a truly effective and efficient solution and and i think we've seen a few little green shoots of opportunity to have those sort of more collegiate conversations um, but equally i do recognize as you suggest shane that i think there's still a little bit of a a fear that any one of those parties has a vested interest in having the conversation rather than a, a slightly more collective solution-based uh, view of approaching it. Um, but we have we have seen some good examples within the friendship space where we've been working with employers, um, the uh, the EQA uh, organisations, and with um, the standards uh, agencies to um and dare i say the funding agencies as well to to help identify ways in which you can maintain a high quality system delivered through the most efficient uh, and effective means that you can okay um right and it's been alluded to a few times now but um changes in how we work so um we mentioned that one of the the barriers uh, one of the things to consider when doing assessments remotely is is of the person being at home um, how has the the change to a predominantly working from home environment at least at least for me I've, I've not been in the office for two and a half months now um, how has it changed in your organizations 
uh, Richard can start with. Yes, it's quite. I mean, it's it's quite a, a mixture for us, really, depending on what kind of part part of the organisation we're looking at. So, so I mean, it, my my team spread across kind of UK, Trivandrum in Melbourne, anyway. So, so we have a bit of a remote working uh, time zone challenge and all, all that kind of stuff to 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 be dealing with day in day out pre. Covid and, and probably about a third of the UK team aren't on office based. So there's there's an element of um, it being quite 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 normal. Uh, there's definitely quite a bit of adjustment for some people to make in a in a home in a home working model, and, and I, I, probably more so around the challenges around time and flexibility that's needed if you're working from home and you happen to now be the teacher of your children as well i think that's that's um that's quite a challenge for people and we um you know we, we, doing as much as we can to offer lots of kind of time flexibility so people can choose when they work so that they can kind of try and juggle some of those challenges uh as effectively as they can um but but the generally i guess this the switch from lots of face-to-face -face conversations with our customers to them being online i mean it works probably a lot better than we thought it might do. Um, how, how well it works effectively over a longer period of time remains to be remains to be seen. But um, the I mean I, I'm personally seeing a massive difference in just the amount of travel I do because of the amount of times I'll be out on the road and meeting people face to face and the and the likes. So it, so it definitely frees up a lot of time for people, but uh, but it changes the dynamic in uh, in communicating out with customers and the likes when you're just not meeting people face face to face as much and in the short term doesn't seem to have a negative impact but i'm just wondering about how that works over a more kind of sustained period of period of time really uh yeah shane you mentioned i think earlier that most of your team are already home-based is that right well the the people who um work with our customers are home-based they're spread around well around the uk and and like Richard, we have a, a team in Australia and we have some folks in America and we're very used to meeting each other on Zoom and having our chats. And, and it's funny because, you know, when you meet them face to face, it's like you've not been apart from each other because you're so used to chatting naturally in an environment like this. Um, for, the, for the folks that build um, the platform and test it and, and support it, um, they, they always work in the office. And it's funny because it wasn't that long ago we were worried about the impact on the business of snow days and how prepared we were for a day or two at home. Uh, luckily, we kind of prepared for that. And so when this crisis hit, um, we were able to very quickly get everyone working from home. And I'm so proud of the team, including, you know, we've got six apprentices and young, young uh, folks who, who've done really well. Um, the folks have got family. Um, we, like Richard said, we've been very flexible with how they work, um, and I think treating everyone as as individuals is really important. Um, the young, I keep saying younger. I think it's just because I'm getting older and older. But uh, the <laughs> managers we have have done a great job. You know, they're running uh, virtual challenges every week around uh, you know photography and dressing up and making stuff. That's been great and quizzes. Um, each week, someone writes a little newsletter to tell everyone across the business what's going on, and they nominate someone else for the next week. And so it's actually been really good. And, and in fact, 
you know, when I said technology is not always the solution, but actually for us, um, we moved about a year ago from Slack to Teams, and, and Teams has been a great environment for us to work in, and we use that alongside Zoom. Um, I think, again, as we talked about right at the beginning of this, we I'm finding we're in lots of meetings and end of the day with sort of Zoom brain. Um, and I think we have to probably, one of the things that's on my agenda at the moment is, is to reduce the frequency of meetings because it's a bit like it's become a bit too easy to have a meeting. Um, I think it's okay to, and we use Teams for this, to very quickly pop on and ask a question, have a one-to-one -one with somebody. But the big team meetings, we need to think about how often we have those and what the purpose of them is. Um, having said that, it's become, it, for those, for when we had this mix of some people on site and some people off site, the off site people often had a, a second rate experience because they weren't in the room with everyone and sometimes missed out on some of the conversation that happened. So in a way, everybody working off site or working from home, um, it's been a bit of a leveler. Everyone has the same opportunity. Um, and, and I think also we were, we were very flexible already with, with how we supported, well, flexible working. But after this, we'll be you know, open to any suggestions from our team because everyone has really risen to the, to the challenge and, and done a great job of working remotely. So if people want to make that their default way of working in the future, we'll be very happy to support that. So there's been a huge amount of learning for us, but also a huge amount of satisfaction and pride in the way the team have, have transitioned. And Patrick, how about City and Guilds? How is that? How do you think they've adapted? Yeah, I mean, I, I would echo the things that, that others have said here. I think we've adapted very well. I think there's some really interesting examples given there about um, we, we always had good technology footprint and backbone, and I think that's been tested uh, to its extreme and has, and has come through, you know, excellent IT support in that context as well. And so in that sense, a lot of that access hasn't been an issue. I think it's an interesting reflection, I think, across the organisation of the teams that um, maybe find it, found it easier to, to shift to this way of working than others. I think where we've got our customer support and contact centres, I think that's required a, a quite a different sort of way of thinking about the way in which we support that when all of that those teams are dispersed to home working clearly anywhere where we would have traditionally had an awful lot of direct customer interaction um, and visiting they've been impacted in different ways um, but then we've got other parts of the business who might be more sort of back office design development um, things of that nature who, who largely speaking have, have, have adapted pretty well um, in terms of working. I think we've, we've got to be mindful of the way in which people have a, have very different perceptions of that sort of balance between work and social interaction at work and therefore we've worked quite hard to ensure that we have, just as others were alluding to there, we have as much time devoted to the social interaction of maintaining a remote link as, as the work interaction because um, that can uh, mean an awful lot for people as well and, and different people have different situations which means that they you know if you were to do a straw poll I think of our workforce you'd probably see a fairly wide spectrum from you know desperate to get back to a, a work location and direct social interaction to working quite well and, and quite happy with the, the 
extended flexibility that it's given people. Um, I thought it was a really interesting observation, that one about in a traditional model, those who traditionally might have been working a little bit more remotely anyway, always feeling a little bit on the periphery. And I guess one thing that it has done is made that much more of a level playing field across everybody. The, the concept of a, of a head office has kind of gone out of the window, really, um, in terms of the way in which we do engage and interact with each other, um, because we're all doing so, you know, from, from the same starting place. And I think some of that thinking, I, I do think, will carry forward into, into the new normal. I think we'll think very carefully about uh, office location. We'll think very carefully about meetings and, and how they're uh, structured uh, and delivered. And we'll think very carefully and think about how we interact with each other uh, to get yeah. things done. Absolutely, right. Well, um, I think um, our time for today is closing. Thank you so much, this has been fascinating. Uh, thank you all so much for, for coming on um, to talk to us. Um, if anybody would like to engage with your company following this, um, where is the best place for them to go? Uh, and again, we'll start working down the list with Shane. Well, I'm happy for people to uh, email me, shane at pebblepad.com. Um, our website's a great place, and I would recommend our Pebble Vision channel um, on, that, on the website. There's some really nice examples of how our customers are using the platform to deal with the current situation, so I'd recommend that. Perfect, Richard. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say exactly the same. I'm more, more than happy to people, for people to contact me directly. So my email address is rlittle at rm.com. So uh, yeah, if you drop, drop, drop me a note and uh, we can pick up any conversations from there. And Patrick. Um, same again. I mean, if everyone wants to pick up with me directly, more than welcome to to email me patrick.craven at sittingills.com. Um, or, um, you know, I would direct you to our website, both Sitting Gills and the group website, um, that's got a wealth of information and materials um, on there that should provide the answers you need. If there's something more specific, please, please just reach out directly. Right. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, the E-Assessment Association um, can be contacted through the website, which is e-assessment.com. And in the near future, we have the E-Assessment Question Conference, which the E-Assessment Association are running, which is taking place from the 23rd of June through to the 9th of July. Um, if you go to e-assessment-question.com, you can find all the details there and information on how to book if you haven't already. Right, well, thank you so much again. Um, uh, I'm going to go and tell my son it's okay to start practicing the piano again. <laughs> and I hope, you, I hope you all have nice evenings. Um, and I'll speak to you all in the future. This has been an e-assessment association podcast. You can subscribe to these podcasts through your standard podcasting channels. And you can also find out more information on our website, which is e-assessment.com. You can join the association for free and learn about all our amazing activities in terms of research, awards, conferences, news and information. Thank you and I hope to see you back soon.